This is Sadie. You're listening to Trafficked. And this is Jess. We're here for your hopefully final part of the Cleveland kidnappings. I'm so done talking about Ariel Castro. Fair. Fair enough. Do you have any announcements? I don't think we have any announcements. I was going to shout out your sister since she's like the only one listening to the section. And even if she is the only one, that's enough for us. And I love her. So I wanted to oh say gosh. that. Sid, thanks for being so supportive. Right. And- for updating us every time you're listening to a new episode. It's really sweet. It makes us want to do it more. True. Also, huge shout out to Shannon, Haley, and Ashlyn, even if they aren't listening or won't. Um, they busted their asses to decorate our entire downstairs for my bachelorette party, and it's still like the best party I've ever attended. It was amazing. It was a good time for the 10 minutes I was there. Yes. <laughs> and also, we're officially less than 100 days away from being wives. Woo! We got a wedding cake that's as spooky as we are. We did. I got a dress. Yeah. You need a dress. So we're just cooking and booking. Do you want to just jump right in? Let's dive into the deep end. Okay. So to remind everyone, this section is a deep dive, but in a more accurate way, an overview of everything that happened inside the house. It's 10 plus years. It's going to be a hefty episode, but it meant a lot to me that all three women have at least a little bit of their lives inside of this hell told. I do want to say the caveat though. Did I say that right? Caveat? Mm-hmm. I want to say that Michelle Knight's story isn't nearly as highlighted during this section, or maybe even it's fair to say this whole trilogy that we are producing, only because I used the book by Amanda Berry and Gina De Jesus. Michelle Knight did have her own book that I used a lot more in the first episode, Mm -hmm. but I just wanted to say that if you're like, where's Michelle? Okay. So Gina's disappearance hit the news within 48 hours. The FBI interviewed Nilda and Arlene since they were the last ones to see Gina, since they were the last ones to see Gina. That Monday, police had combed through the school surveillance footage and the main doors camera was down the day she went missing. Are you kidding me? I wish. And of course, if it hadn't been, police would have gotten a clear shot of Ariel Castro entering the building, and they might have found Gina within days. Wow. Right? In fact, Castro asked a school security guard if he'd seen Arlene, and when the police interviewed the security guard, he didn't even mention it because Ariel worked for the school system as a bus driver. So they probably came up to him and were like, anything suspicious? And he was like, nope, can't think of anything. Wow. I know. Just like another thing that's like, shit. RAL continues forcing Gina to sleep on the mattress with him and gropes her. He also makes her watch TV on the couch with him like they're friends, and that really scares her. She saw a story about herself on the news, and the news anchors have associated her disappearance with Amanda's now, even though she'd never heard of Amanda, but she wrote that she'd never watched the news before now. So mm-hmm. she was a baby. Yeah. She sees her mom and dad pleading for her return and imagines her dad running into the house, ripping her chains off and carrying her home. And she imagines hugging her mom and never letting go. And those are the things that get her through the day when she's really low. Immediately, Ariel begins to pit the girls against one another, though. He tells Amanda that the girl in the bedroom next to him is Michelle, and she's grateful to be there. He says that her family actually pays him to keep her there, and Amanda just thinks her headbanger music is annoying. But she admitted that she began resenting Michelle after Ariel told her that she needed to act more like Michelle because Michelle doesn't cry when he forces himself on her. Yeah, so horrible shit. 
Amanda guessed that she saw Michelle 10 times the first year, but they never said more than hi to one another because, again, Ariel was batshit about them not knowing too much and essentially piecing together who they all were. Mm-hmm. But we have to assume that they're not stupid and they had to kind of figure out, even before they all came together and talked for the first time, I'm sure they knew that the other girls wound up there the same way they did. Right. At the first opportunity, Amanda says, hi, I'm Amanda Berry. And Michelle replies that she knows who she is. She's seen her on the news. And I can't really imagine being in Michelle's situation and knowing that she wasn't on the news or covered at all. As soon as Ariel realized that Amanda and Michelle even exchanged that like sentence of a word, he lost it and separated them and told them that they were making too much noise. And Michelle didn't fall for it, but Amanda didn't understand why Michelle would be lying about her to get her in trouble almost from the get-go. She just kind of like took the bait, I guess, and immediately distrusted her. And she's significantly younger than Michelle, right? right? Yeah. So at this time, Amanda's around 17 and Michelle would be, what, 22, 23? Yeah. So, right. I mean, that's a huge thing to notice as well. So really quickly, I wanted to tell my favorite Dina story because when Zadie first started researching all of this, she did share a lot of the stories with me. And so this one really, really stood out to me. So one day in August of 2004, Michelle and Gina are sitting in the living room. Ariel's been drinking beer and comes in with a gun. Michelle starts immediately freaking out, but Mm -hmm. Gina like doesn't really bat an eye. She's like, he told me he had a revolver when I got here. And then if I tried to escape, he'd kill me. Right. She knows there's a gun. She, you know, has been kind of anticipating this. He asks them to play a game with him and he opens the chamber of the revolver, puts one bullet inside and spins the chamber and then closes it up. So they're playing Russian roulette. Yeah. So he closes up the gun and he looks at Gina and Michelle and he's like, this is the game. I'm going to put the gun to your head and pull the trigger. And then after that, you get a chance to put the gun to my head and pull the trigger if I don't kill you. And Michelle's freaking out and saying she doesn't want to play. And Gina says, I'll play. Michelle says, bad idea. And Gina literally said, what do I have to lose? Oh my God. So she got a little nervous when she had time to actually think about the gun thing to her head, but she, she kept going. She really didn't care. Ariel puts the gun to her head. She hears the click. God. And nothing. That's insane. He gets down on his knees in front of her and says, let's see if you can pull the trigger. If you can, it means you hate me. And if you can't do it, it means you don't hate me. He's such a, like a manipulative psychopath. Exactly. As if like trying to convince Gina that just because, because what, you know, he teenager is comfortable pulling a gun if they've never held a gun before. Also, though, you just said, if I don't fucking kill you first, and now you're going to turn around instantly and be like, but if you do the same thing, it means you hate me. I think in his fucked up mind, he was like, she's not going to be able to do it, and this is going to convince her she doesn't actually hate me. Honey. But she straight up thinks, is he serious? Does he not realize how much I fucking hate him? Yeah. And he said he needed a minute to pray. <laughs> I brought, who's he praying to? Exactly. No one's helping him. And then he opens his eyes and says, okay, but if you can do this, it means you hate me. And she like immediately, as soon as 
he hands her the gun. She doesn't fucking hesitate. She puts it to his head and pulls the trigger. Yeah, she and is. she said, I was hoping he'd be dead on the floor and I'd run out of the house and we'd all be free. But she went after the gun didn't kill him. She was like, oh, I'm going to be in really big trouble and he's going to really hurt me. He got up off the floor and walked out. And that was the whole game. And I don't know why I just loved that moment of badassery from Gina that she's like, you know what? I don't have anything to fucking lose. I die or I get to go home or nothing happens. Also the sheer apathy yeah. from him. Like he's not, I feel stupid being like he's not normal, but like there's something so wrong with his psyche. Yeah. Clearly. Well, also the sheer apathy from Gina who like to understand that's how bad it was in that right. house and that's how bad she was mental health wise like she was ready to die it's interesting that we have seen gina and amanda both actively try to engage either in assisted suicide or just like i'm so done being here i don't give a fuck what you do to me yeah it can't be worse mm-hmm. And yet we've seen Michelle from the beginning saying you can't break what's already broken. And she's just such a fighter in a different way. And it's been really, God, this whole case just shows you like how different people react to trauma. But like, I just cannot, I'm really happy you shared your favorite story. Yeah. It was important for everything. Like we learned more about everybody's perspective Mm -hmm. from that. I think you're exactly right. Everyone reacts differently to trauma. And these are such different girls in the exact same trauma yeah. and they react so differently. Yeah. And I think you phrased it beautifully. Like that's exactly what it is. So now we're at August 23rd, 2005. Ariel shouts at all of the women to gather up their belongings and make the rooms look unoccupied that they've been living in for upwards of three years, or at least make them look like they did before they quote unquote moved in. Mm. <laughs> He'd gotten sick of his kids asking too many questions about why they were never allowed upstairs or why they couldn't see the rooms they grew up in. And when his daughter Emily asked to visit from Indiana, he said she could stay with him in her own bedroom. And that adds a whole other layer of like morbidity if you think about the people he forced to live there. Uh, but we can move on. Like he literally put people as prisoners in the rooms his children grew up in, and that really bothered me. But yeah. There's so much about this case that's disturbing. It's kind of hard to get well, stuck on that. It's also such a mind fuck to know that, like, one of his daughters mm-hmm. came in town for, we'll estimate, a week or whatever. Sure. And stayed in a bedroom that had been occupied by a prisoner for three plus years. A prisoner, a rape survivor, an abuse survivor. And she just had no idea. Yeah, so uh, Emily's room had, for the purpose of this show, we can just think of as Amanda's room. Gotcha. So that even makes it weirder to me. It would be weird no matter whose room it was, but he does have a really strange thing with Amanda. Right. I don't get it. I don't know if any of us more um, attached to her in in a picturing her as his wife kind of way. Yes. Yes. So... He's able to erase every aspect from the rooms except the chains that the women were attached to that run through the walls to some unknown location that had to have been pretty fucking sturdy to keep them, Yes, I guess, there. Amanda hoped that the chains or the boarded up windows will clue the kids into something peculiar going on and maybe they'll call the police. She remembered thinking she was back in the spot where this hell had started for her a little over two years prior because she's back in the basement. Yeah. 
A few hours later, Gina and Michelle make their way down the stairs with their laundry baskets and belongings, just like Amanda had been instructed instructed to do. They all hoped he didn't have some kind of collateral damage plan set up to erase the evidence if they were ever there at all. Mm-hmm. Can't imagine that. God. I know. I know. And this is the first time that all three have been allowed to occupy occupy the same space unsupervised. Mm-hmm. So it's actually a really cool turning point for the girls and their relationships with each other because until then, it, it was just a non-starter, if mm-hmm. you will. So as soon as they come downstairs with Ariel, Amanda says, I need more privacy. I'm not going to the bathroom in front of them. That's embarrassing. You need to give me a little bit more here. And Ariel seemed genuinely concerned with Amanda's discomfort, or maybe he was just really excited that the girls seemed to want space from each mm-hmm. other still. And realistically, the less and realistically, the less they bonded, the better from his perspective. They're less likely to team up against him. So he finds an old wooden dresser and drags it between the woman, dividing Michelle and Gina from Amanda. But again, it's a tiny wooden desk. If with any effort they can look up over it, scoot around it. It was just rock between them. Yeah. Michelle and Gina are chained to each other and the pole. Amanda is straight up ignoring them and pretending they aren't there, and it's palpable, and Gina remembered wondering why Amanda hated them so much. None of them had an inkling at the time of how intentional, I mean, like we've discussed so many times thus far, how intentional this was, how mm-hmm. Ariel wanted this to happen. Right. Ariel threatened all of them with the words, quote, you know the rules, you know what you're not allowed to talk about. Wow. Gina fucking hated his rules. She's the youngest. So at this point, she's what, 16? Mm-hmm. She's funny. She might be 15 actually only, but she's at that age where you tell her what not to do and she'll do it. Yeah. I would do want to talk about for a second though. Uh, he was a complete control freak and he had rules for everything. He had rules for what size of spatula to use, the direction the women could flip an egg, what songs they could listen to. And if they strayed from his idea of perfect at all, he'd obliterate them with verbal insults and he really liked the r word or dumbass wow which i fucking hate hate it just shows how ugly he was after one night amanda realizes that if for no other reason she actually did want to get to know gina and michelle just because ariel told her not to kind of like gina Mm -hmm. um and at, at that point, she was genuinely curious as to, like, who else was in hell with her, basically. And at that point, she didn't have the most options on human contact either. Mm-hmm. So she slides around the desk and says, hey, to Michelle and Gina, what are you watching? And from G- it was really cute actually reading the book because they'll alternate each other's perspective. And Gina, I guess, looked at her like she was a dog that talked for the first time, was just really not ready for that. And she was like, we're just watching stupid stuff. Gina and Amanda start bonding over the things that they like. And they connected over Eminem and Christina Aguilera and how much they miss their moms. They actually exchanged threats they'd each received from Ariel and realized he was using the same exact tactics on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, he'd driven by Amanda's sister, Beth's house, and reported that her nieces were playing in the front yard in matching outfits. He told Gina if she was ever lonely, he could always kidnap her friend Chrissy to keep her company. All with the underlying threat that, you know, you do what he says or you're responsible for your loved ones joining you. Yeah. Gina and Amanda bond even more over their families appearing on TV looking for them. They joke about how funny it is that a Tennessee hillbilly and a Puerto Rican are hanging out and they laugh about how their families are closer friends than they are. Yeah. They all bond over how racist Ariel was and the efforts he went through to project that onto the women. 
he broke the knob on Amanda's radio so she couldn't listen to a station that was primarily rap artists. Mm. And he never allowed any of them to watch TV or movies with black actors. In addition to that being unacceptably fucked up, all three girls were really upset because they all had the biggest crush on Will Smith and he was on all of their hall pass lists. (laughs) So obsessed. Wanted to point that out. Wow. Yeah. That's literally (laughs) night one that they all got together. They were like, God, but I miss Will Smith. (laughs) And they were just kind of like preach. Oh my God. I love that. Right. Wow. I can't believe that on top of all of his other (laughs) assholery. Right. And dirtbaggery. Yeah. He's also that fucking racist. Oh, he's a piece of shit. There's not a redeeming quality about him. I I just, I just don't think he can get any worse. And then he somehow makes it way worse. I know. It's actually, no, it's so fucked up. So Gina opens up to Amanda about the horrific things Ariel does to her. And at this point, he started raping Gina and Michelle while they're actually chained together upstairs. Again, they're all sharing these stories. It's not happening actively. And Amanda just starts sobbing because she honestly didn't think it was happening to Gina, at least. Um, I guess Ariel always made it seem like in a really twisted way, it was just her. Mm-hmm. And, and probably another effort to make Amanda think that captivity was easier for everyone but her. And like she just was a brat who didn't know how to be grateful. Yeah. And again, another reason for Amanda to resent the women trapped inside of this fucking house with her. At the end of the night, Amanda and the girls kind of make this pact and they agree to stick together and that everything they share stays between them. In the middle of that night, he comes downstairs and rapes Amanda while she was feet away from Michelle and Gina. And Amanda knew that they were both pretending to be asleep. Gina realizes that Arlene was actually one of the people visiting her dad over the course of these days. Oh, my God. She thought about how her friend was right above her and had no idea what her father was doing to her. Want to know something really wild? Yes. Gina felt so bad for Arlene. My God. She wondered how Arlene would feel if she ever found out who her father really was. And it didn't help that Amanda chimed in that she knew Angie and worked with Anthony and Michelle knew Emily. Yeah. So they all have really fucking creepy connections to his children. And Gina thinks about screaming, but Amanda convinces her it wouldn't be worth their lives if it didn't work out. Mm -hmm. They really did have that collateral damage plan in the back of their head. Yeah. We're up to August 27, 2005. Between visits from his kids, Ariel would ask Michelle and Amanda to come upstairs to, quote, help him clean. But they all knew what he was he was raping them right and at that point they've been in the basement for four days at that point like we said it's day four arlene says to her dad i want to see the basement why is it always chained and he makes up some bullshit excuse like well i don't know where the key is so that gets them out of the house that night and so then he comes down to the basement that night and it's like you guys have to leave i came up with a really smart lie because i'm brilliant but now you have to move again because apparently i'm not brilliant enough to be like the keys lost lost I don't know. They get moved into his van inside of his garage in Ohio in August. Ariel ties the women's chains to the front seat, and he brings Amanda's plug-in fan and secures it to an outlet in the wall of the garage, and he brings a single bucket for the girls to use as the bathroom. That's so horrible. Yes, and if you're wondering throughout this trilogy how the women have been going to the bathroom for the first couple months of their captivity it was just a bucket and then it became a privilege that he would revoke at the slightest hiccup he'd be like 
okay, you can't go to the bathroom for two days, but he's plumbing is what he meant. Mm -hmm. It's back to the bucket. It's like a punishment. Yeah, that's just an awful detail as well. The girl said it felt like 100 degrees, but I'm psychotic and checked the temperature that day. <laughs> it was between 90 and 100 degrees. They're lucky they didn't die. Right. I right. mean, lucky and that's, as a very fucking relative. Right, they, exactly. But that was... It was 90 to 100 degrees before being locked in a van and in a garage with two other grown women. If you can even say that. Malnourished women, I guess. Prisoners? I don't know. Take it what you will. You know that we're not saying human that these beings. are civilians enjoying their lives very clearly. It's two just other human two other beings. One, at least one of whom were still a minor. Right. The next day, Michelle says, I always thought you didn't like me to Amanda. Yeah. I always wanted to be your friend, but I didn't think you liked me. And Amanda was hot and irritable and snappy. And without thinking, she said, don't be stupid. I don't need friends. And instantly regretted it. Oh. So Gina broke the tension immediately by being like, ooh, you're so cool. And Amanda remembers Gina calling her out and it just like breaking the tension. She compared it to popping a balloon and like all the hot air rushing out. And the women all really laughed. Mm -hmm. I think. I don't know. I, I thought that was a sweet moment, actually. Sweet. At some point, Gina laid down, really trying not to think about the inescapable heat and where the fuck she was, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. And then she gets hit by something, and she instinctively flips out on Michelle because that's, like, her roommate, basically. Mm -hmm. And Michelle was like, I didn't do it. It was Amanda. And Amanda starts cackling, holding a pillow. And then all of the girls just break into a full-blown pillow fight, and they're cracking up. And for the first time, I think, in a really long time, they didn't give a fuck if they were quiet. Yeah. They were just being girls. Oh, I, love I, I know. Ariel returned the next day and told the women to get out and stay quiet so he could take the van out of the garage for whatever reason. And after pulling the van a few feet in front of the garage, he hopped out. Amanda whispered that she thought she could reach the pedal, and this turns into something else she regrets as much as the day that she got kidnapped. Mm -hmm. Gina says, you're crazy, it's too risky, and before she can build up the courage, Ariel's back in the van, applauding them for staying quiet. And to Amanda, this is just another like devastating failure. So Christmas Day 2005, Amanda learns on the news that her mom is sick and in the hospital. She lights a candle for her and falls asleep next to her mom's picture that night. Over the next few days, the local news shows Amanda's mom and sister at the hospital. She sees Beth holding a baby boy and is proud of her nephew, even though she never knew her sister was pregnant. Mm -hmm. She doesn't know his name, so she calls him Little Man. Oh. She keeps the candle lit for her mom the entire time, promising to Luana that when she gets out, she'll take care of her. Luana actually saw a psychic on TV mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. was like, I think my daughter's still alive. And the psychic was like, I'm seeing her in a body of water. I'm so sorry, but your daughter's dead. You need to stop hoping she'll come back. And Amanda watched that live and was so mad because she knew she couldn't tell her mom that wasn't true, mm -hmm. but she was furious, rightfully. Yeah. Here's my thing about psychics. Tell me. And we covered this a little bit with the Ed and Lorraine Warren thing. I believe there are people who are tapped into things I can't understand or explain. I believe some people have that ability more than others. My thing is, if you are one of those people, you better be saying something you know for damn sure. Yeah. Don't be the kind of person who goes on TV and tells a woman that her daughter is dead so that you can get clout. That's one of the most fucking sick things you could ever do. Mm -hmm. 
to an, a woman, to a mother, to a human being. It was Sylvia Brown. I don't know. I, I have never heard of her. I hope no one ever does again. I Me hope that well. she, her reputation is ruined. It should be. She, she ruined a woman's life. She ruined a woman's life. For no fucking reason. Just keep your damn mouth shut and stay in your own lane. Especially if it's a missing case. Yeah. Why don't you comment on anything that isn't keeping a family still together? Yeah. There's too much on the line. Also, is your reputation that much more important than a woman's hope? I have no idea. I, I just don't really understand how someone gets off being like, oh, you're so dead wrong. Yeah. Or what good that does... You think that's going to give her closure of some kind? You think she's going to start healing? No, you just took her hope away and she still has no idea where her fucking daughter is. Right. You said she's dead in water somewhere. Yeah. That's way darker than, I don't know. Anyway, I just wanted that to be put out there that that Luana Miller has been going through a lot and Amanda was fired up and just so in protective mode, ready to be back and taking care of her mom. So March 2nd, 2006, there's finally an update with the headline breaking news. Luana Miller, mother of Amanda Berry, passes away of a massive heart attack. I'm only sharing the last line of the letter Amanda wrote to her mom that day. Mm -hmm. It read, quote, I love you. I love you. I love you. Thank you for never giving up on me and everything you've done for me. Rest in peace. God bless you. Love me. I know. I cannot imagine when that was so much of you and I'm getting really emotional. I can't imagine when that was so much of Amanda's reason to stay alive and fight was to go see her mom and hug her mom and take care of her mom. Mm-hmm. How fucking devastating that would be. And knowing that your mom would never get to see you free again and that you would you would let, missed the last few years of her life. I will say, as she wrote that letter, Amanda said she was happier. Mom knew where she finally was. That's beautiful. She was such a firm believer. And it's evident with the rest of the story that her mom was still someone who gave her strength and courage. Mm -hmm. And Amanda, we're actually about to get on to our next thing. So that happened in December. I'm sorry. March. Yes. So that was March 2006. You're right. Amanda's been there around four years Mm -hmm. at that point, getting raped who knows how many times. Mm -hmm. So April 22nd, 2006, it's Amanda's 20th birthday. She's so excited and she thinks she's pregnant and she's keeping it a secret. She's wholeheartedly convinced her mom sent her a miracle, an angel, a new reason to fight for life. Oh, God. Mm -hmm. I don't have words for that. Yeah. So Amanda was rightfully scared at this point and needed to keep her secret close to her chest. Michelle told her in the van about the beatings that she'd endured to induce miscarriages because Ariel is a sadist. Mm -hmm. So it's not something she can just assume is a happy miracle, I guess, the way it is to her because she's still in hell. By May 2006, Ariel point blank asks Amanda if she thinks she's pregnant she said she thought she was. She'd missed some periods. Um, and that's when he said they could always drop it off at a fire station after it was born. And she begged him to keep the baby. And he was so confused, he stood up and walked out of the room. Wow. Right. So we're also seeing a completely different reaction than Michelle received. Mm-hmm. I'm not 
I'm not even going to spend time or waste time speculating as to what he was thinking because it doesn't fucking matter. At this point, Gina and Michelle are frustrated with Amanda and her quote-unquote relationship with Ariel. Mm -hmm. She denies her pregnancy to the women, but Ariel admits it freely to them. She's constantly puking, so Gina starts making puking noises back to let Amanda know that she knows that she's lying. Yeah. (laughs) Gina's a firecracker. Gina's hilarious. Honestly, yeah. even weirder, Gina starts realizing that when Ariel rapes them, he almost tries to keep it a secret from Amanda. Like, he doesn't want Amanda knowing that he's... I don't know. We're going to leave that there. I don't feel comfortable speculating on what he was thinking because it's so... Whatever it was was so clearly severely fucked up. Right. None of it was accurate. But those are just things that we all... Like, that the girl said that was noticeable. Christmas Day 2006, Amanda goes into labor. On what day? Christmas. Oh. Oh, God. Exactly a year after she mm-hmm. found out about her mom. Being sick. I know. Ariel insists on Amanda lying in a plastic kiddie pool on her bed to contain the mess with no medical intervention, supervision, or guidance other than Michelle, who had previously given birth before captivity. Right. She was just having to go through labor. And to make it even worse, Michelle and Amanda couldn't even fucking stand to be around each other at this point. And neither of them had a choice to mm-hmm. come together during her labor because Ariel told Michelle that if anything happened to the baby, he'd kill her. Wow. So not good. Amanda goes through the labor She passes out at the moment that the baby comes out. From the other room, Gina can hear Amanda scream she isn't breathing. And then after what felt like an eternity, there's a baby's cry. Ariel looked proud to be a father again and told Amanda to cut the cord, but she just couldn't. She she just went through so fucking much. Uh, So he actually ends up cutting the cord for Amanda, and Michelle places Amanda's daughter on her chest. Amanda named her daughter Jocelyn Jade Berry. She gave her the middle name Jade because it reminded her of her mom. So from then on, Amanda and Ariel's relationship became more predictable. She knew he was raping her still. Um, Mm -hmm. She was chained and never willing, but he only came in to assault her when Jocelyn was sleeping and he wasn't nearly as violent or angry. I guess it was more passive. However the hell we take that. Michelle and Ariel always thought after this, their relationship was mostly yelling and beating and Amanda was full-time mom. Gina found a lot of joy in helping take care of Jocelyn. Ariel wouldn't buy diapers. So Gina is the one who cut socks and shirts up for the baby to use as diapers. And she would give Amanda safety pins to secure them. And she also took up sewing and practice a lot so she could make Jocelyn, Michelle, and Amanda clothes on special occasions. That's precious. I know. Gina didn't love feeling like she was the maid, but she also really enjoyed a change from like watching TV all day and just waiting for her next assault. Gina really enjoyed making Jocelyn laugh and she loved how Jocelyn made her forget where she was. And Amanda was nicer to Gina after the baby was there. And Ariel's mood overall did seem to improve, which in some way kind of made life better for everyone. Mm -hmm. He constantly photographed and videoed Jocelyn's development and milestones. And when she was a toddler, he demanded Michelle and Gina pick new names so Jocelyn wouldn't raise alarms by talking about Amanda, Gina, or Michelle in public. Wow. If she ever was at a park or he was able to come up with some kind of like, this is my girlfriend's kid, which is what he told people. That's so fucking sick. Yeah. I cannot also imagine like probably every time that baby left the house, a mix of like, oh, thank God this Mm -hmm. baby gets to be in the world mixed with, oh, good God, 
Is that baby going to come home to me? Right, right. <sighs> there was a paragraph in the book as well over one of Ariel's kids, I guess, seeing Jocelyn at some point. Whoa. And again, he's saying, this is my girlfriend's kid, whatever, whatever, whatever. And the daughter was like, dad, she looks identical to how my little sister looked when she was that age. Are you sure that's not your kid? Like, that's your fucking kid. Is that my sister? And he just denied it point blank, like up and down and just didn't let the kids around her anymore. Wow. So he was just lying out of his ass. But I did like that the the daughter was like, that's my sister. Um, Fuck you. (laughs) I don't know what else to say about that. Michelle picked Juju as her name and Gina picked Chelsea. Also, I can't. Can we talk about how they're now being stripped of their fucking names? Yeah. On top of everything else they've given up and sacrificed? No, they don't even have any semblance of an identity. So in 2009, altogether and without warning or discussion, he just stops chaining them. From my research in human trafficking, I am going to speculate a bit here that he's confident enough that they're broken in, Mm -hmm. which is a term that they use to enslave people. Right. Uh, and at that point, they're confident that they aren't going to try to escape from their control. Right. <laughs> Hasn't been confirmed, but that's a very telltale sign. Because of how human traffickers tend to behave, mm-hmm. not necessarily think that their patterns of behavior, that's probably exactly what happened. He's also less able to explain the chains away from Jocelyn, who's already asking questions, noticing things like how her mom can't go anywhere without her dad or her dad's permission. Mm-hmm. Ariel believes and tells the women they're all a happy family during all of this so every christmas when they get together for jocelyn's birthday and they exchange gifts and he's videotaping her he does say to all of them like isn't this great and says all sorts of things that have devastating effects for their mental states right gina starts cutting herself michelle tries to intervene but gina snaps at her and tells her to mind her own business kind of like a big sister roommate Mm -hmm. and after a while she actually opens amanda's door and sees that jocelyn must be out with ariel gina says i cut myself and it's because of you to Amanda. Whoa. Amanda says, what do you mean? Gina holds out her arm and Amanda sees cuts in various stages of healing. The fresh ones make Amanda tear up. And Gina explains how mean Amanda's been and says that Ariel's always telling her what lies she's saying to get her in trouble. And even though Amanda knows that's not true, um, she can acknowledge that she hasn't been the nicest she could have been either. Mm -hmm. And Amanda just says, I don't want you to do this because of me. And Gina bursts into tears and says, I'm so sorry. I don't want to hurt you. We get enough hurt from him. And Amanda took that like a slap in her face and realized that they were exactly the same and in the exact same situation. And she didn't realize how it took her so long to see that Gina was just a barely younger version of herself. And she realized that hating each other didn't make any of it less shitty. And she told Gina she needed to stop and that she wouldn't tolerate her hurting herself anymore. And that she was back in the game, basically being on the girls' team and being against him and full full force, just trying to stick together. She told her she read somewhere once that if you slap your wrist with a rubber band when you want to hurt yourself, it'll help you give up a habit. And so Gina thought she might give it a shot. Mm. I do have a little section over... Ariel's fucked up perception of himself, which is only included because we have notes that he wrote right after Gina was kidnapped. Ariel told the women nearly every time he raped them that it wasn't his fault. It was his sexual problem. He called his penis Charlie and he'd say what Charlie wants, Charlie gets. Okay. In a dated confession letter marked 4404 at 8.06 AM, Ariel wrote, 
To the best of my knowledge, I was born in Puerto Rico. I was abandoned by my father and later my mother. My grandma raised me. Trigger warning. I was abused sexually by the son of Luis and Filia, and his name is Pucho. He penetrated my rear a couple of times. I was five or six years old. I soon learned how to masturbate. I was interested in sex at a very young age. Sex has always been a big part of my life. I married at 20. I lived a normal life with my wife and children, but my marriage was a failure from the beginning. My mother was an abusive parent. Her ways of parenting were very bad. For this made me grow hatred for her. There were times I wished she would die. Anyway, my marriage was also abusive. My wife would hit me and push me to the limit. I hit her back. She put me in jail only to get me out and apologize to me. This happened a couple of times, but the name calling and the arguments were always there. I tried to reason with her that the kids don't need to hear or see the fights. I felt bad to see my children frightened and scared. My wife always said she didn't give a shit. The marriage lasted about 12 years. I always loved and still love my children. I only read that because now we're going to juxtapose that with his conversation with Amanda on February 9th, 2011. Because we actually have someone who was like, you're full of shit. Yeah. Because that's how he wants people to see him. And this is how he is. So he wakes her up and he is like, come downstairs away from everybody and Jocelyn. We need to talk. He said he wanted to explain the situation she was in, why she was in it, so that one day she wouldn't have to wonder. Okay. He said it's because he had a sexual addiction and he's had it since he was a kid. He said he was going to quit his job and spend more time with Pretty, which is what he called Jocelyn, before he returned them both back to Amanda's family. And he didn't know how or when, but he guessed it would all end in a few years. He talked about the effect that kidnapping all of them had on his mental health. Oh, that poor man. And how leading a double life gave him headaches. Oh. And how it strained his relationship with his adult daughters. You know what a really great solution for that is, babe? Hmm. You don't fucking kidnap people to keep in your house and rape for years. I know. That seems too easy, though. Well, mm. I don't want to make it make it too easy. Right. right. He complained that, you know, he never had a relationship with his son. Okay. Because he stood up for his fucking mother, but we'll yeah. let that go on. He admitted to beating Nilda and said she didn't know when to shut up. And that's when Amanda said that's no excuse for hitting her. You could have always walked away. And he said, no, you don't understand. She pissed me off so bad. And then he said, you know, sometimes I don't even have feelings. I think I'm cold hearted. I don't care how people feel. And Amanda said, well, I don't know how you could do this to me and my family. I mean, you see my sister crying on TV You see what this has done to my family and Gina's. Could you imagine going through this with your kids? What if your kids were missing? And he says, you know what? Sometimes I look at your family and I have no feelings about them at all. I know they're hurt, but it doesn't bother me. Like I said, I don't have feelings. So at that moment, Amanda says, when are you letting us go home? And he said, I don't know, but soon. And she says, you've been saying that for years. And with that, she gets up, walks back upstairs and said she was excited to be locked in her room with Jocelyn because at least there was nobody crazy there. Yeah. Yeah. I cannot believe he said that Nilda was abusive to him. In his letter. And that she, he'd hit her back. Right. And that's why he got put in jail. I also like how he's like, I don't want the kids to see this. And paints her as this villain when 
you don't have a relationship with your son because he actually took like you out of the scenario to beat the fuck out of his mom. And her new husband who actually treated her well and they didn't have those problems. So clearly she was not the aggressor. No. You put in prison. Right. You ruined her life twice. And right. then she died. Right. But he's still slandering her. Like he just can't fucking stop. He's just incapable of telling the truth. Yeah. So from this moment on, Amanda begins writing down words she finds in the dictionary to describe him, which I find amazing. I'm going to share four of them with you. Okay. Sociopath. Yep. Fair. A person whose behavior lacks a sense of moral responsibility or social conscience. Censorious. Always finding guilt or fault and criticizing. Despot. It's probably despot. Despot. How weird. Okay. Despot. <laughs> a person who treats those under his control in any way he cares to, cruel or unjust. And then lastly, sadist. So that's how I want to end the section on his perception of himself. We're ending it the way it actually was. Yeah. Anyway, May 2011, we're getting a lot closer to the escape date. I don't know if you guys know the escape date. It was May 2013. So we're getting there. He asks Amanda to cut his hair. She's confused because Gina usually does this and he threatens her not to mess it up. He lays down face first on a mattress and the position would be awkward for like a trained hairstylist, let alone Amanda. Amanda accidentally cuts a little bare spot and he acts like he's going to explode. He says, what are you doing? Why did you do that? You did that on purpose. And so she's instantly like, I did not. It's literally nothing. If I did it on purpose, I would have made it a lot bigger, which I think is fucking hilarious. <laughs> That's like a fucking awesome defense. And so then he screams at her to get upstairs. Three hours later, this part's really traumatic. Trigger warning. Mm -hmm. It's not even sexual, but I just find it fucked up. Um, three hours later, he stomps up the stairs with a hat on to cover his tiny bare spot. And he's holding big metal scissors. And he says, quote, it's haircut time. You messed up my hair, so I'm going to get even. She says it was an accident. Why do you have to do this? And he tells Jocelyn to turn away to look at a different corner of the room. And she does what she's told. He grabs Amanda's hair, cutting a huge bald spot on the top of her head. He says, I know you did that to me on purpose. So now you can look at this every day. And he keeps shoving the scissors into her hair and cutting blindly while Amanda sobs. He opens Gina and Michelle's door and invites them to come see Amanda's new haircut. And they try really hard not to look over or indulge him. He comes back in to ruffle Amanda's hair and she tries to kick him in the crotch but misses. Mm -hmm. And he raises his fist and tells her he'll punch her. And then he looks at Jocelyn and leaves. So just completely dehumanized her and took away. I don't know. I think cutting someone's hair off is like just so spirit breaking i agree amanda sobs on her bed trying to use the remaining hair to cover the bald spot but it's not working it's way too big jocelyn's terrified and clinging to her crying gina comes in and sits down next to her and she says if it was me i would go downstairs and look him straight in the face and say it doesn't bother me don't let him beat you be proud keep your head up remember what your mom would say oh god and Amanda thought that she was completely right, and she knew her mom would tell her to quit crying and be stronger than he is. Mm -hmm. I love that. I, do too. I fucking love it. In June, he's cutting his own hair in the bathroom, and Gina's sitting on the couch. And she thinks it's really funny how in love with himself he is. I guess he spent so much time staring in the mirror and, like, fixating on his appearance and all this stuff. And she is cracking up in her head because she's like, he thinks he's so attractive. And she wants to scream, dude, you're old and fat and nasty and hairy. Looking in the mirror isn't going to help. Uh -huh. 
And she wanted to say it out loud, but she said it wasn't worth the beating. She notices that when he starts buzz cutting his hair, he's going way too fast up and down to the side, like a literal psycho. And she watched him cut a bare spot along the backside of his head. And he hadn't noticed it yet, but she knew that it was significantly bigger than the spot Amanda gave him Mm -hmm. a month before. And he turns to Gina once he realizes and screams that it's her fault. And she's like, what the fuck are you? Like, she doesn't cuss. But she's like, I didn't do anything. I've been sitting here the whole time. And he says something stupid, like his machine's never done this before. So she must have messed with it. What? Right? I wonder if his arms are tired from reaching. <sighs> he says, I'm going to jack you up like I did Amanda. And she said, I don't care. This is a really, really fun fact. After Britney Spears shaved her head in 2007, Gina did too, hoping it would drive Ariel crazy. Another time she gave herself a mohawk because he'd always complimented her hair and told her how pretty it was. She was like, fuck you. This little badass. Yeah, she stopped doing it though because he did like to touch her bald head and that grossed her out basically as much as when he was fixated on her hair. But she knew if she didn't let it bother her, whatever he did, then he couldn't hurt her. He really didn't have the control he thought he did over her. Yeah. So two days later, he yells for Gina to come to the kitchen. He's ready to jack her up good. That's what you said. So she gets up off the couch with Amanda and Jocelyn. Knowing that Amanda cried for days after her attack, Mm -hmm. she's determined not to give this reaction to him. She thought, no way, dude. Yeah. She's awesome. That's a direct quote. Oh, my God. (laughs) She sits down and says, do what you want. And she made herself sound as bored as possible. She said, I've had a mohawk. Everyone's seen my bald head. I don't care. He grabs her hair, chops a few pieces, and she looks him right in the eyes the whole time and says, is that it? Wow. He gives her, he like freaks out and gives her the same bald spot in the front of her head, just like Amanda, getting faster and more frantic with it, like really angry. He's not getting the reaction he wants. So then he's finally like, that's a nice haircut. How do you like it? And she says, oh, you're done? Good. Can I go play with your child now? Fuck. She walks into the living room and says, look, I got a new haircut. Isn't it beautiful? And Jocelyn cracked up and giggled, thinking it was a really fun game. Mm. Ariel walked in the, into the room and said, what are you going to do? Going to shave your head now? And she said, no, I like it. Going to keep it just like it is. Shit. And he walked out, slamming the doors and locking them in. And it felt like a victory. Okay, now we're finally to the good part. It's May 6, 2013. So at this point, she's how old? So she's born Christmas Day, yes, 2006. So it's 2013. So she's like, she's not quite seven. She's like six and a half. She's a baby. Mm-hmm. So she runs into Amanda's room yelling, daddy's gone, daddy's gone. And instantly Amanda assumes her daughter's confused and that Ariel was somewhere around the property. He's never left their door unlocked and left the house. It's mm-hmm. just not how this goes. But for some really weird reason, nobody's doors are locked. And so she's instantly just like, my sweet child, you're confused. Yeah. Amanda's facing a dilemma now because one of the conditions of her chains being removed was never going downstairs without Ariel's permission. Mm. But she couldn't confirm or deny what her daughter's telling her, like out of fear of being recaged. Yeah. So she instructs Jocelyn to check the backyard. He's probably out there working on a car or something. She goes downstairs, looks out the windows, returns upstairs, tells her mom, daddy's blue car has gone too. And Amanda realizes for the first time in 11 years, she has a real opportunity to escape. Yeah. Amanda tiptoes across the upstairs, mustering the courage to check it out herself. Mm -hmm. Needless to say, she has her life on the line if she's wrong about it. 
Right. She quite literally takes two steps forward and one step back debating what to do. She thinks about Jocelyn and how she can't bear the idea of Ariel raising her by himself. But she also thinks about Beth and the hell she's endured and how desperate she is to get back to her older sister. Mm -hmm. Amanda instructs Jocelyn to stay in their bedroom while she creeps down the stairs and looks on the couch, kind of hoping that Jocelyn didn't oversee her dad sleeping there. Yeah. But he isn't anywhere to be seen and the radio isn't blaring for basically the first time since all of their kidnappings either. She makes up her mind in that moment, turned around and sprinted over her bedroom to slip on high tops and makes the deliberate decision to plan her escape alone. Because mm-hmm. if they get caught trying to escape, she really hoped it would save Gina and Michelle's life and only jeopardize her own. Yeah. Jocelyn knocks on Michelle and Gina's door, but the girls quickly hear Amanda say, don't bother them. So the girls don't answer. They're good at like not mm-hmm. interfering. Amanda tells Jocelyn to wait in their bedroom again, but this time to be ready to run down the stairs and meet her if she heard her yelling for her. And Jocelyn anxiously agreed that she knew something was really strange happening mm-hmm. or something really strange was happening because she'd never seen her mom go downstairs on a company. Right. This is just not what she's used to. So she asks again if she can tell Aunt Juju and Aunt Chelsea, and Amanda says no. Mm-hmm. So she turns back into the hallway and is paralyzed with fear. Can't move, can't even start. And in that moment, internally, she begs her mom to give her the strength to go or for a sign and she said it felt like someone physically pushing her behind her and then she's sprinting down the stairs she runs across the living room to the front door she realizes in that moment she forgot about his alarms and wonders if they'll be set off but she can't focus on that Mm -hmm. she unlocks the door pulls it open and there's no alarm going off she's never seen the door open more than a crack and screams jocelyn jocelyn come down here Jocelyn scrambles down the stairs as Amanda realizes there's a padlocked storm door on the other side, and she's devastated. She had no idea there was another door. She pushes and shoves, but the door doesn't budge. Jocelyn feels her mom's panic and screams, Mommy, Mommy, what are you doing? I want Daddy. I want Daddy. What are you doing? And she manages to get the door open just enough to stick her hand out, and she starts screaming, Help me. Help me. From their rooms, Gina and Michelle hear Amanda screaming and Jocelyn sobbing. Gina calls out Nandy, but when she hears nothing, they fear for the worst, and they think she got caught and beat maybe to death, and mm-hmm. they know he'll be coming for the next, so they hide. A man comes up to the porch to Amanda's relief. She screams, can you help me? He looks scared, and again, she says, please help me, and he tries to pull the door but realizes it's chained. Help me. I'm Amanda Berry. I've been kidnapped for 10 years. Help me. She screams. And an older woman comes up the sidewalk and waves her finger at the man saying, no, no, no. And the man steps away from Amanda off the porch. And the woman says she can't be Amanda Berry because Amanda Berry died years ago. Fuck you. Yeah. Yeah. A tall guy comes up to the porch next. Different dude. Oh, my God. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. So people are just walking by hearing yes. a woman screaming that she's been kidnapped for 10 years. And your first assumption is, oh, probably just goofing around. She's Pretty sure she died. She's lying. Okay, keep going. So another tall guy comes up the porch and pulls on the door a couple of times. And Jocelyn's still screaming. So I, you can all imagine the panic everyone in this moment who's witnessing it must be feeling. Yeah. Or just, it's not great. Jocelyn's crying for her daddy, and all Amanda can think about is that if her daddy came home right now, he'd kill her. Yeah. The guy says, oh, man, this thing's locked. And Amanda's like, please, please help me. 
And the man looks at the door and realizes that the bottom paneling is falling out. It's just like, I'm not sure what it is, Mm -hmm. but he tells Amanda to kick the other side out. His actual quote was, come on, mama, kick out the rest. Come on. (laughs) And so she starts kicking and kicking until she can squeeze through and pulls Jocelyn out with her. And she's still screaming for her father. Amanda screams herself, I need a phone. And the guy leads her across the street to his house for the phone. And the 911 operator who spoke to Amanda fucked up royally, of course. Okay. They talked over her, talked down to her, and hung up the phone before police arrived. No. Yeah. Like three or four times she said, I'm Amanda Berry. I've been kidnapped. And the person was like, I I get that. Like, I had realized who you, like, I heard who you are. Clearly not knowing who the fuck she was. Yeah. Like, we've established that. No. And yeah. also, you're fucking, part of your job as a 911 operator is to keep the situation, like, calm and mm-hmm. stay on the phone with a right. victim until until the police get there and it's not in your hands anymore. In that moment, it's in your hands. The 911 operator was reprimanded and given mandatory empathy training <laughs> from their supervisor. Wow. Wow. Right? I'm actually going to play you the man who told her to kick out the doors account really quick because I think it's incredible and worth it. And his name is Charles Ramsey. Four seconds, May 2207 Seymour, West 25th. Hey, check this out. I just came back from McDonald's, right? I'm on my porch eating my little food, right? This broad is trying to break out of the fucking house next door to me. So it's a bunch of people in the street right now and shit. So we like, what's wrong? What's the problem? And she like, this motherfucker done kidnapped me and my daughter and we've been in this bitch. She said her name was Linda Berry or some shit. I don't know who the fuck that is. I just moved over here, bro. I don't, you know what I mean? The dispatcher says, sir, 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 you have to calm down, slow down. Is she still in the street? 
He says, yeah, Seymour Avenue. And they say, and is she still on the street? Where did she go? He says, yeah, I'm looking right at her. She's calling y'all. She's on the other phone. They say, is she black, white, or Hispanic? And he says, uh, she white, but the baby look Hispanic. My favorite line. <laughs> the dispatcher says, okay, what's she wearing? He says, a white tank top, light blue sweatpants, like a wife beater. He says, do you know the address next door where you said she was in? And he said, yeah, 2207, I'm looking at it. And they said, I thought that was your address. So he said, nah, nah, I'm smarter than that, bruh. I'm telling you where the crime was, not my house. Obsessed. Obsessed. The dispatcher says, look, we can't talk at the same time. Do you just want to leave your name and number? And he's like, yeah, my name's Charles Ramsey, R-A-M-S-E-Y. And then they said, and the people, are they still in the house? And he says, I don't have a fucking clue, bro. I'm just standing out here with my McDonald's. And they said, can you ask her if she needs an ambulance? And he says, you need an ambulance or what? And then he says, she need everything. She's in a panic, bro. I bet she'd been kidnapped. So put yourself in her shoes. And they say, we'll send the police. Thank you. And he says, there you go. <laughs> oh, my God. So, Yeah. From Gina and Michelle's perspective, they hear a door crash downstairs and then shouting. In the upstairs hallway, they hear Cleveland police, Cleveland police, and Michelle sprints out screaming, you saved us, you saved us. Gina's a lot more skeptical. She's actually wondering if this is all some elaborate ploy. Mm -hmm. She was actually thinking they could be fake policemen. Michelle jumps into one man's arms and he gently puts her down. So she jumps into a woman's arms and says, please don't let me go. Please don't let me go. And the officer promises that she won't. Mm -hmm. I know. (laughs) Outside the street is lit up with police officers, news stations, and FBI agents. Gina meets Amanda and Jocelyn near an ambulance, and Michelle's on a gurney hyperventilating. They're finally all getting the attention they've needed this whole fucking time. Mm -hmm. Gina remembered thinking, wait until he finds out it's Amanda who got us out. Mm -hmm. And Amanda actually said, it's the one you trust the most who screws you over in the end. Hell yeah. A few streets over, Nancy Ruiz leaves the house of a neighbor she dropped off food with. We've talked about her drive-bys. They're mm-hmm. infamous. She hears commotion, and another neighbor runs out screaming. They found three girls in a basement down the street. And Nancy screams, oh, my God, is it my Gina? Mm-hmm. And the neighbor says, I don't know, but we got to go right now. So Nancy goes. She runs straight up to the FBI agent and asks, is it Gina? And he says, yeah. And Nancy says, I heard there was a baby. Is it hers? And he says, no, but they went to Burke Hospital. That's where they're headed. Please go. They have all three women on gurneys Mm -hmm. in a line, essentially, with little... It's the setup where they have this... They can, like, pull up the sheets between Mm -hmm. them or not. These women are very used to not having space from each other. I don't think those curtains were fucking drawn. So Gina has a doctor in her face explaining how the malnutrition affected her the past nine years. Basically, every woman was 20 pounds less than what they were when they were kidnapped. And they were kidnapped as... Children. Yeah, so Amanda was 92 pounds. And she was 120 when she was kidnapped. God. For example. So Gina has a doctor in her face saying how the malnutrition affected her when she hears her mom's voice calling for her. And eventually her mom gets up to her and Gina's only able to basically say, hi, mommy, just loud enough for Nancy to hear. They just hold each other and sob. And Nancy periodically pulls away and caresses her daughter's face to see if she's really okay. And then within minutes, her father and sister join the group hug. I know. I know. She says, Mommy, do you still make mashed potatoes, fried chicken, and corn? And Nancy sobbed and said, I'm making it tonight. 
Oh God. I know. <laughs> she asked if they could go to the mall and Nancy said they'd go tomorrow. And Gina remembers she brought the missing flyer with her. She'd had it under the hospital mattress and gave it to her mom that she'd drawn hearts around. Mm -hmm. And she watched her mom's face turn from horror to anger because her mom recognized that flyer and knew only that neighbors got them. Gina thought that if Ariel was in the room, Nancy would have killed him with her bare hands. Yeah. So Amanda anxiously waits for Beth to arrive. A nurse asks what Jocelyn's favorite food is, and she screams KFC. So someone drives out and gets her some. They brought her the spicy kind, so she's like gulping down water like it's her oh. lifeline. But she's just like fine. Yeah. She's a baby. She's fine. She's like six and a half yeah. at this point, right? Yeah, and she's gone outside the house before. So like, again, she's not in her comfort zone, but she's doing better than everyone else. Kind of. So eventually, Amanda sees Beth at the nurse's station before Beth sees her. And as soon as Beth makes eye contact with her, she shoves everyone out of the way until they're hugging and they're just sobbing. And Amanda's aunt and cousin came in too and they joined the hug and jo Jocelyn's watching and isn't really sure who anyone is or what they're doing. Mm -hmm. So Amanda's aunt asks, who's this? And she says, that's my daughter, Jocelyn. And she says, well, tell her to get over here. Oh. So, <laughs> so she walks over to the hug and is introduced to them all. And she instantly knows who they are because Amanda's been talking about them her, her whole life. Oh. So she was like, oh, you're my aunt Beth. You're my great aunt. Oh. Okay. Do you have my cousins with you? Like, oh. <laughs> she's just caught up. Yeah. So now we're going to get into the aftermath. The morning after Ariel was arrested, police located 90 feet of chain inside of his house. Oh, God. They found more notes describing Amanda and Michelle's kidnapping, like I read to you. Mm -hmm. He claimed that he treated them well and fed them well, and he wrote that he didn't understand why he kept looking for women when he was already it had to in his possession. That's how he wrote it. Yeah. He said Michelle and Amanda were in his possession because they made the mistake of getting into a vehicle with a stranger. Like repetitively blamed this entire thing on their stupidity. That's horrible. Yeah. He wrote that he had no idea how young Gina was and that she looked a lot older and that he had no idea that she was the daughter of his old classmate Felix, which is complete bullshit. Right. Zero percent chance. No. Castro pled guilty to 937 felony counts. Wow. Honestly, not enough. <laughs> Can you imagine the joy, though, of probably the people who charged him and yeah. the judge of like being like, you're, you're getting account for this and this and, and this. this. And let me just read them all to you, motherfucker. Right. You absolute piece of shit. We're holding you accountable for absolutely everything we can. So Judge Timothy McGinty described Castro as evil incarnate and explained that the 937 counts were consecutive, not concurrent, because he pled guilty. They didn't seek the death penalty, and Castro agreed to life in prison plus a thousand years. Hell yeah. Yeah. The judge acknowledged the women and said, quote, now for Miss Knight, Miss De Jesus, Miss Barry, as well as your young daughter, we celebrate your futures. We acknowledge the faithfulness of your families, your friends, and all the others in the community who so fervently believe that you are alive. On behalf of the judges and the staff of this court, we wish you continued success and a sense of peace. Beautiful. On September 3rd, 2013, Castro hung himself. And I don't care to tell you any more about his experiences. You can look them up if you want, but we're focusing on everyone else. 
Can I ask one question? Uh-huh. Were people just horrible to him when he was in prison? He complained constantly that he wasn't being treated appropriately, yeah. No, I was just hoping that, like, other inmates... Oh, he lived most of the rest of his life in solitary confinement because uh-huh. I think they just, like, didn't want to deal with his bullshittery. Fair. Sorry to bring the focus back to him. I You're fine. to know that he had a horrible time. Yeah, he did. Good. Continue. He deserved it. Castro impregnated Michelle five times while she was in captivity that she knew of and each time forced her to miscarry by starving her and beating her until she got her period. We can assume that's why their relationship was only hostile after Amanda gave birth. Mm -hmm. Michelle had injuries so severe that it left her unable to have children afterwards. However, after she was rescued, she was able to find out her son Joey was adopted adopted by a couple who loves him dearly, and they have remained in contact. I don't know if she and Joey are there yet, but I know for a fact she was able to get photos and updates and find out that her son was really well taken care of, which was her biggest concern in captivity. I mean, she constantly wondered how her toddler was and if he was athletic, mm-hmm. and she got pictures of him playing baseball and soccer and in jerseys and just becoming the most handsome little boy. That's and so she did get that back, which is amazing. And now she actually she wrote her own book, like we talked about, and she tries really hard to help women in abusive situations get out, mm-hmm. and women in poverty get away from their abusive families before then, so they don't continue the cycle of violence. Yeah. Amanda and Jocelyn live with Beth and Teddy. They do well, and Amanda takes her job as a mom, basically the most importantly, mm-hmm. and she still homeschools Jocelyn just like she did in the house. Mm-hmm. And she said, quote, he kidnapped me, chained me like a dog in his house, raped me over and over. Because of him, my mom died without knowing if I was dead or alive. She was 43, and I can never forgive him for breaking her heart. Gina's father finally had enough money with the settlement that they received from the city um, to build an addition onto their home. And so she lives there with her bustling little family. And that's where all of the women were as of copyright 2006. 2015. There you go. As of 2015. And this case meant everything to me. I really hope you guys enjoyed it. I hope you got hopefully the closure you were looking for. You made it all the way here. And if not, please find the answers yourselves. You're not going to be disappointed with uh, anything. What's up, baby? I have one more question. Like literally ask me all of them. Are the girls still in touch? Michelle needed a lot of time to herself. I think they're in more touch now, but I know that Amanda and Gina stayed really close. Because their families were also very, very close, right? Yes. And so, yeah, Michelle took some time, but I do know that they they all were, they all text each other. Mm-hmm. I know when news of Ariel's death was on the like, news station, the first people, they, they only called each other. And whenever the city decided to demolish their house mm-hmm. that they were trapped in forever, mm-hmm. One of them, I swear it was Gina, went and watched it, but the other two just weren't really interested. Mm -hmm. But it meant everything to Gina to watch every fucking brick get torn down. So I know that they're in contact, whether it's just a text or what, but they have that still. I didn't know if there was still that animosity that existed in the house. I don't think so. And even in Michelle's book, she said that she wanted time. I don't necessarily think it was anything other than her own healing that she's never had a chance to in her whole life. You know what I mean? And that's why she didn't participate when they wrote the book very much immediately after. Right. She took that time and then she chose to tell her own story. And I actually 
find a lot of respect in that decision because yeah. her story was completely different. Yeah. She had a completely different perspective. Her entire book starts with her childhood. Mm -hmm. That's when her abuse started. Yeah. And, and it's very different. And she is probably still suffering is the thing, yeah. especially since her, I mean, she missed out on her entire, her child's entire fucking life. Mm -hmm. That's not something that's going to, you don't get that back. You don't get that back. I don't know. I think that makes sense. You know, mm -hmm. as much as it can. You have any other questions? Because I'm sure other people have them. If you do, no, I. Is it? This was a genuinely moving story, and I'm so glad you went into so much detail about how they reunited with their families. I don't know if our listeners could hear it, but I stopped. I know. At Gina's story. I was over here, a puddle, and just crying. I thought it was so beautiful. Yeah. It's an insane story of human trafficking, survival, and mostly just, I think, human beings coming together. We talked the other day. We saw a horrible accident on the highway. It was awful. Mm -hmm. But there is something crazy about when the worst of human nature comes out, it also feels like we see the best of human nature mm -hmm. respond to it. Yeah. I think that's really cool. Mm-hmm. It's not any kind of solace, but it's also a little bit like, it gives you a little bit of faith. I think that it's a beautiful part of human nature, that in the face of evil, we try, or the face of horror or trauma, we try our hardest to give what little we can mm -hmm. to try and add good. Yeah. So a lot of the money we talked about in the end was just donated from people who heard the story and wrote letters and sent gifts. Jocelyn had so many toys to open from people across the country who wanted her to have everything she never did. That's beautiful. The judge, because he pled guilty, Castro did, mm -hmm. he was able to, from beginning to end, from the rescue date to when he was, to when Castro was sentenced, it was 90 days. Wow. Which is unheard of in the legal system. Yeah. Absolutely everyone, I believe, came together to make sure this fucking nightmare wasn't prolonged any longer. Because mm -hmm. it was already, Michelle was there for what, 12 years? Amanda, 11. I think Gina, 9. It's just horrible. So I really love that the community came together and made sure that when they were out, they were out. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't like you're going back to court for the next two to three years to litigate or it's... for your daughter to testify. You know what I mean? Jesus. No, that is, yeah, I'm really, really grateful you are the one who did all of this research because I know I would not have been able to uh, get through it as quickly or concisely as you. It was very moving and you did an amazing job. Just one more thing I want to add because I'm the worst. And I was telling you that for the next couple of days, I'm sure I'm going to be like, damn it, I wish I would have included that or yeah. this story or that one. Amanda really busted her ass to make their bedroom into a classroom for Jocelyn. And every single day from the time that she was old enough to start preschool, she would make lesson plans and they would run around her room for an hour for exercise. And she was constantly making sure Jocelyn was mentally stimulated and learning how to count and learning how to read so that when they were rescued and not in hell anymore, she would be on track with her peers and for someone who didn't graduate high school, I am just obsessed with how much love she had for her daughter yeah. and how she, God, she lost her fucking mom while she was in there and was so far away and was still able to just like find another miracle. And I just, that's what I wanted to end it on. It's like, I am so proud of each and every one of them for the survival they never fucking should have had to endure. Yeah. I was really, really glad that we did this. 
it's always been a dream of mine. Wow. Sadie, thank you for <laughs> doing this. And thank you everyone who took the time to listen to this super extended final episode of this monster of a case. Yeah. Literally, figuratively. Yes. If you have stories for us to cover in the future, you can send those in to us at traffickedinamericapodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on our Instagram at traffickedpodcast or on our Twitter at traffickedpod. Thank you guys for listening. And remember, don't be a fucking dirtbag. Bye. Bye.